We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Away we go, episode 655 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Wednesday, September 13th, 2023. It is the day after a major return for an Orioles starting pitcher. It is the day of a major debut for a Nationals starting pitcher. And it is the day on which the Commanders begin practicing for their game at the Denver Broncos this Sunday afternoon at 425. A lot going on. Hello and welcome to this Wednesday installment of the Al Galdi podcast. I have not one, but two great Commanders-related guests for you. Uh, Next segment, I'm going to welcome back one of the best X's and O's people when it comes to talking about our football team, Commanders analyst Mark Bullock, who provides terrific Commander's Film breakdowns on his Substack, Bullock's Film Room, which you can find at markbullock.substack.com. Mark is going to go in-depth on the Commander's regular season opening 2016 win over the Arizona Cardinals at a rainy and sold-out FedEx field this past Sunday afternoon, including analysis of the performance of quarterback Sam Howell, uh, breakdowns of each of the six sacks that the commanders allowed, including who slash what was to blame for each sack. Uh, The truth about the performance of the commander's offensive line in the game. It is a truth that may surprise you. The play calling of Eric Bieniemy in his first regular season game as commander's assistant head coach slash offensive coordinator and much more. Mark Bullock next segment during which I also have a special announcement. Stay tuned for that. Uh, And then after my conversation with Mark, I'm going to welcome back Denver Broncos insider Zach Stevens of the DNVR.com. He is the co-host of the DNVR Broncos podcast. Zach knows the Broncos really well, and he's going to provide us with a scouting report on this Sunday's Commander's Opponent, uh, among the many topics that we'll address. Where we at 
with the Broncos quarterback, Russell Wilson, who, remember, the commanders in the 2022 offseason very much wanted to trade for, uh, but then who had a nightmare of a 2022 season. Uh, how our old pal Samaje Pirine is doing. Yeah, former Redskins running back Samaje Pirine. He actually appears to be a key part of the Broncos offense and what the commanders offense might be able to exploit with the Broncos defense. So a lot of commanders talk on the show, as is always the case. Also on the show, I will talk Nationals and Orioles. Each team lost on Tuesday evening. And thanks to a Palacios brother. Uh, The Nats lost at the Pittsburgh Pirates 5-1 as Pirates right fielder and ex-Nat Joshua Palacios went two for four with a two-run homer, a single, a stolen base, and an outfield assist. The O's lost to the St. Louis Cardinals 5-2 at Oriole Park at Camden Yards as Joshua's brother, Cardinals right fielder Richie Palacios, came off the bench and went two for three with two solo homers. The Palacios brothers, <laughs> go figure. But also with the Nats and those big starting pitching news. Uh, one of the Nats' top prospects, Jackson Rutledge, is going to make his Major League regular season debut on Wednesday evening in what is Game 3 of a four-game series for the Nats at the Pirates, as this Nats season will get a much-needed injection of some juice. We like ye, the juice. You like it, the juice, eh? <laughs> yes, we like ye, the juice. And the O's, uh, they and their loss to the Cardinals on Wednesday evening got back John Means, who made his first major league regular season start since he underwent Tommy John surgery on his left elbow on April 27th, 2022. He allowed three runs in five innings. I will cover all of this in detail later in the show. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Email from Joey Martz uh, scolding me <laughs> about something and then asking a question regarding the commanders attempting to score and succeeding in scoring shortly before the half in their win over the Cardinals. Right, Joey. Galdi, I need you to show JMU some more love on that win over UVA. JMU is going to have another good year in the FBS. JMU versus UVA should be a game every year. My question for you about the Manders. Do you think going forward before halftime was a B-enemy call? Seems like any other time we are losing with time still on the clock before the half, Rivera will just take a knee and get back to the locker room. I'm glad that the team tried to score and at least got the field goal. Just wondering what your thoughts are on that. Uh, Thank you for the email, Joey. Uh, I hear you on James Madison. On Monday's show, episode 653, talked at length about the Duke's big win, 36-35 at Virginia this past Saturday afternoon, but I did focus on the game from a Virginia standpoint. Hey, in fairness to me, nobody in the Washington, D.C. market sung the praises of JMU's great quarterback last season, Todd Senteo, like I did. Todd Senteo for last season won the Sunbelt Conference's awards for Offensive Player of the Year and Newcomer of the year. And heck yeah, James Madison and Virginia should play every season. That game this past Saturday afternoon, the first football game between James Madison and Virginia since September 1983. Uh, And yes, I loved the commanders trying to score late in the first half as opposed to going conservative and just running out the clock. Uh, This was the drive that followed the Sam Howell second quarter sack strip loss fumble that was returned for a touchdown. Uh, This was a drive that started at the commanders 19 with just 49 seconds left in the first half. 
but the drive did result in kicker Joey Sly's 30-yard field goal as time expired in the second quarter. Sam on the drive went 3-6 of six for 69 yards. Uh, did have a near interception, uh, but the commanders on that drive were aggressive, and they were rewarded for that aggression. And I do think that that was Eric Bieniemy's call, trying to score on that drive. Now, I think that that was Eric Bieniemy's call with the blessing of Ron Rivera. Ron still is the head coach. This still is his team, and he can overrule Eric on things. But I do think that, generally speaking, the offense is Eric's. He runs the show. Uh, email from a good friend of this podcast, Howard Gutman, the former United States ambassador to Belgium, a big Commanders fan, a loyal listener of this podcast, and a longtime friend of and strategic advisor for the top limited partner in the Josh Harris Group, Mitchell Rails. Uh, the ambassador, by the way, is co-hosting a Commanders postgame show, uh, as he announced in his most recent appearance on this podcast, episode 637. He and his son, Colin, are hosting the postgame gut check on Sports Radio 910, The Fan in Richmond, Virginia. You can also listen on the Odyssey app. Uh, But the ambassador's email is about the Nationals, not the Commanders, specifically the drama that uh, has become the retirement of starting pitcher Steven Strasburg on Monday's show talked about the latest, writes the ambassador. I know that figuring out what's happening with the Nats from the cryptic signals that emerge is akin to reading tea leaves in a cup of coffee, (laughs) but I interpret what is happening with Steven Strasburg somewhat differently. I think that Mark Lerner would like to reach a settlement agreement with Strasburg by which Strasburg retires now and is discharged from all of the obligations of an injured player, such as attending spring training, regular team doctor visits, etc. It would let Strasburg move on to the next chapter in his life and would save the Nats some money based on an agreement with Strasburg as to a haircut for being relieved of the meaningless obligations. But it appears that Strasburg is insisting on being paid every penny. So Lerner said, see you in spring training. Uh, Thank you for the email ambassador. Yeah, Nats managing principal owner Mark Lerner this past Friday evening put out a statement that concluded with the eyebrow-raising words, quote, we look forward to seeing Stephen when we report to spring training, end quote. Strasburg, per report from Nats insider Jesse Doherty of the Washington Post this past June 3rd, is dealing with, quote, severe nerve damage, end quote. Uh, Strasburg is done. He'll never pitch again. There ain't no competing in spring training for Steven Strasburg. Mark Lerner in that statement saying, quote, we look forward to seeing Steven when we report to spring training, end quote, came off like Lerner daring Strasburg to try to pitch again, despite knowing that he can't pitch again. Now, whether the line was intended that way, who knows? But that is how the line came off, at least to me, uh, and I know to more than a few people. I don't know how much stock we should put into this, but former Nats general manager Jim Bowden, Uh, who now is with CBS Sports and Sirius XM, he on Friday put out a tweet that has since been deleted. The tweet read as follows, quote, Owner Mark Lerner and Prez, Mike Rizzo, offered to pay full amount of Strauss contract, have a retirement ceremony, and retire his uniform next year. Strauss invited family, friends to D.C. for the 9-9-23 ceremony. Then, according to sources, commissioner's office talked to Lerner about the bad precedent it sets, and Lerner then informed Rizzo to pull out of the agreement against his wishes. Disappointing and not a good look for team. End quote. So how about that? 
Jim Bowden put out a tweet saying that the commissioner's office of Major League Baseball told Mark Lerner not to pay Strasburg the remaining money on the seven-year, $245 million contract to which he was re-signed in December 2019 because of the bad precedent that would set, and then deleted the tweet. Did Bowden delete the tweet because he was wrong, because what he put in the tweet was fake news? Or did Bowden delete the tweet because he was, uh, shall we say, compelled <laughs> to delete the tweet by MLB? Did MLB Commissioner Rob Manfred and his boys have a little conversation with Jimmy B? Uh, either way, you can look for yourself. That tweet, that post on X, uh, now is gone. Well, I'm not sure what the law firm of Paulson and Nace makes of the Steven Strasburg contract situation from a legal standpoint, but I do know that if you have a case, you should contact Paulson and Nace. Paulson and Nace is a Washington, D.C.-based family law firm that handles medical malpractice, personal injury, birth injury, legal malpractice, and consumer protection cases offering aggressive advocacy for victims in Washington, D.C. and West Virginia. The law firm of Paulson and Nace is always there for you. Call 202-902-7611. And when you call, make sure that you tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Paulson and Nace fights for victims of all kinds of situations, including victims of errors made during diagnosis, during surgery, or with medication, victims of injuries caused by dangerous medications or medical devices, as well as defective auto parts, victims of accidents involving cars, trucks, bikes, or motorcycles, victims of deceptive trade practices and false advertising, heck, victims of shady lawyers. If your attorney acts in bad faith, is unethical in his or her counsel, or is negligent in his or her work, you could have a claim for legal malpractice. Paulson and Nace has represented corporate clients throughout the region, and Paulson and Nace has won millions of dollars for clients. If you have a case, contact Paulson and Nace. If you feel that you've been wronged, if you think that you've been wronged but aren't sure, call Paulson and Nace and schedule a no-obligation appointment. Call 202-902-7611. That's 202-902-7611. And when you call, tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. You can also visit PaulsonandNace.com. That's PaulsonandNace.com. Just don't forget to tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Paulson and Ace, if you have a case, contact Paulson and Ace. Well, please consider following this podcast if you're not already doing that. Uh, following the podcast is free. If you have an iPhone, you can follow the podcast simply by tapping the plus sign in the upper right corner on the page listing the recent episodes of this podcast. So on episode 649 of the podcast, had Commander's Insider Ben Standing of The Athletic on as a guest. And it was during our conversation that I announced an arrangement a partnership between Ben and myself for this commander season. Uh, we are going to be going on each other's podcasts on an alternating week-by-week -week basis. So one week, Ben will be on my podcast. The following week, I'll be on Ben's podcast and so on and so forth. Well, I'm happy to announce another arrangement, another partnership, another alliance. <laughs> uh, it is with the man who joins me now, commander's analyst Mark Bullock. 
Uh, he also is a Commanders fan, and he does excellent Commanders film breakdowns. You can read Mark's work on his Substack, Bullock's Film Room, which you can find at markbullock.substack.com. Uh, he has more than 2,000 subscribers. He puts up multiple posts per week, and the posts are in-depth film breakdowns with video. So you can read the writing and watch the video. Uh, make yourself a smarter Commanders fan, markbullock.substack.com. He's written for The Athletic and for The Washington Post. You can follow Mark on Twitter, at Mark Bullock NFL. And so let us now talk about what went down for the Commanders and how what went down went down uh, in their regular season opening 2016 win over the Arizona Cardinals at FedEx Field this past Sunday afternoon. Mark, how you doing? Uh, I'm doing very well, thanks. How are you? Doing well. Good to have you on. Uh, you on Monday published your breakdown of quarterback Sam Howell in the win over the Cardinals, and you tweeted that what you saw from Sam in watching the All-22 was better than you anticipated. Why was that? Yeah, well, I mean, coming out of that game and obviously in that, that sort of second half where the offense didn't really get going, um, and it, it kind of took the defense getting them a couple of turnovers in field goal range to really kind of get them going. Um, it, it kind of felt like how was struggling. Um, and obviously there was the three turnovers in the first half that didn't help things at all. And, you know, you just look at the stat line, it wasn't fantastic. Um, but when I, when I watched it back, like there were actually some pretty decent plays from how obviously he's a young quarterback. He's, in his second, that was his second career start, and um, in, the inexperience is always going to shine through uh, for young quarterbacks. There's always going to be ups and downs, and there were ups and downs. Um, but in general, I thought there were more ups than I, I felt like there were when I finished watching the game off the TV broadcast. Um, and then there were some better plays than I remember there being. So I, I, I thought overall it was a pretty decent performance. I, th- I thought there were some decent processes, um, mental processes in terms of understanding the route combinations that they're running, um, what the coverages he was getting and, and where to go with the football. Um, there was a few things you'd like to see him clean up where he uh, occasionally was holding onto the ball a little bit too long. You'd like to see him speed up that process a little bit. Um, and, you know, the the interception was a little bit late and the, the the turnover with the sack fumble just can't happen. But, um, you know, when you're playing uh, the team like the Cardinals who seem to be trying to tank for Caleb Williams, you can kind of get away from those with, with those kind of things. Um, and against better teams, you, you need to learn those lessons. So hopefully he'll learn those lessons. Um, but in general, I think it was a, a decent start and um, that there were certainly positives where you, you, you look at the occasional play and go, wow, there's, there's, something there there's talent there um and and if you can tap into that a little bit more often then hopefully you've got something going forward what were the most impressive passes that sam howell had in the win over the cardinals um i think there was the thing for me was how he bounced back from the adversity And, and and you see everyone all the beat reporters and ron rivera and and eric Bieniemy keep talking about how nothing seems to phase him and how he stays so even keeled and, and negative plays, he just kind of shrugs off and, and bounces back. And I think in Washington, the perfect example we had before was Kirk Cousins. In his first few years, he would spiral. If he threw an interception or two later on in the game, it would become easily three or four. And I think he had that one game against the Giants where he threw five and, and like three of them were in the fourth quarter or something like that. So um, 
th- that can happen for young quarterbacks and Sam Howell doesn't seem to be impacted by that. And, and the drives after those kind of negative plays where, you know, he took the sack fumble, then the next play he led them on a, a really good scoring drive. Um, and then there was the interception. And again, he led them on a really good drive after that. But um, I think that was the one where Antonio Gibson fumbled once they got into field goal range. So, um, yeah, I, I think the way he was able to show that he kind of can shrug off the bad play, not in a, you know, oh, I don't care about it, but in a, well, it's happened, let's move on and, and make sure it doesn't impact us on the next play. Um, but perhaps probably the most impressive throw, I think, was in the two-minute drill. Um, it was a, a deep over route to Cole Turner. Um, and what was impressive about it was how they... The, the Cardinals sent a, a linebacker uh, that was kind of uncovered and Sam Cosme did a really good job sliding across to pick it up. But Howell had to kind of maneuver within the pocket to, to dodge that pressure and give Cosme time to pick it up and then delivered a, a really good throw over the middle to find Cole Turner um, for a nice, I think it was like 19 yards. So that was, to me, probably his most impressive play. As you know, normally an issue for young quarterbacks is them not progressing through reads quickly enough, i.e. staying on reads for too long. But head coach Rod Rivera in his day after the game press conference on Monday afternoon said that Sam Howell in the win over the Cardinals at times actually got off reads too quick. Uh, Did you see that in watching the All-22? I think there was one or two. I I, I think for me, the tendency was more to take a little bit too long to get through his progression. Um, but there was certainly, uh, there was an early deep shot that they had called on up to Diomi Brown, where they, they sent him on a jet sweep and that turned into a wheel route down the sideline. And the safety and corner to that side, both attached to Terry McLaurin. And as you would kind of expect, and Brown was running free down the sideline and granted it would have been, you know, a, quite a tough throw down the field. He would, how had got to the opposite hash. So it would have been a very long throw to make, but it's one that he's capable of making. And, you know, especially as it's to his guy in Diami Brown, uh, you would, you would think that he would kind of stay on that and, and give him every chance, especially as we saw in that preseason, you know, he was given, he was given Diami Brown every chance he could in the preseason to go make plays. So um, that one, I was surprised that he was, very quick to come off of it and and really didn't need to because it was there. Um, but he still then came back and, and found John Dotson for a decent gain anyway. But um, in general, for me, I, it was more a case of he took a little bit too long to get through his reads. Um, and, and there was the prime example of that was the, the ball that he threw behind Terry McLaurin that hit a defender in the head. And, and, and that was one where... Um, he was reading a, a smash concept to his right where the outside receiver ran a quick hitch. And, and I think it was Logan Thomas in the start ran a corner out behind it. And generally you want to try to read the outside corner and, and either throw deep or throw the hitch, depending on how the outside corner plays it. But the defense covered that pretty well and how just kind of lingered on it just an extra second too long. Um, and that made him late coming back over to the middle to McLaurin, which is why he kind of threw it behind McLaurin and ended up hitting that defender in the head. So that, that for me was, was more the bigger issue. 
So the two Sam Howell turnovers in the win over the Cardinals, the commanders in the second quarter had three turnovers, two by Sam. Uh, First and 10 for the commanders at their 29, Sam threw an under center play action pass that was tipped by defensive lineman Kevin Strong, ended up being a wobbly pass and went right to edge defender Zayvon Collins for an interception. And then later in the second quarter, third and 10 for the commanders at their 26, Sam had a lost fumble on a sack strip by edge defender Dennis Gardeck, who blew by right tackle Andrew Wiley and then poked the ball out while Sam was spinning away from pressure. The ball was recovered by edge defender Cameron Thomas, who engineered a uh, two-yard fumble return for a touchdown. Which of Sam's two turnovers was more avoidable, in your opinion? Uh, the the fumble was more avoidable. That, that one is just one where he's got to remember when, when he's trying to scramble, he's got to protect the football. Um, he's holding it in one hand, out away from his body, nice and loose, basically begging for a defender to knock it out. And that's what happens. And, and that that just can't happen. The, the, the interception was an unfortunate one um, because the ball was tipped and, and then it, that kind of took the pace off of it and that allowed the linebacker to sink under and intercept it. Um, but that one was also avoidable because I think how he lingered on that one a little bit too long as well, where uh, Jahan Dotson had run almost a triple move where he ran an out and up and then stopped at the at the top of it. And so that was one where he was waiting for Dotson to stop and sit down rather than anticipating him doing that. And if he had anticipated Dotson breaking off the route, he would have been able to throw that earlier. Um, the defender wouldn't have been in the same position to be able to tip it and the linebacker wouldn't have been in the same position to undercut the throw. So... Um, the, the window was there, but, but Howe was just a little bit late. But he was still quite unfortunate to have that kind of tipped and, and intercepted. Um, but certainly the, the easily most avoidable one was the, was the sack fumble. You, you just got to protect the football. Much more with Mark Bullock in moments. I'm going to next ask him about the six sacks that the commanders allowed on Sunday afternoon. Allowing sacks, not a good thing, but allowing catering by Uptown to cater your big event is a very good thing. Catering by Uptown. It is the DMV's number one catering service. Catering by Uptown is a family business that prides itself on its signature dishes and flawless presentations and catering by Uptown goes beyond just food. Uh, Catering by Uptown offers personalized consultation and event planning assistance that are outstanding, including venue coordination, custom catering menu selection from over a thousand delicious dish selections, and a day of event coordinator who will make sure that everything runs smoothly. From putting together and executing a menu, to picking linens, to selecting an excellent florist, Catering by Uptown is committed to meeting your needs and exceeding your expectations. Whether you're having a wedding or a corporate event, an intimate gathering or a gala, Catering by Uptown is the way to go. Visit cateringbyuptown.com and make sure that you mention that Al Galdi sent you. Uh, also know this, Catering by Uptown has job openings for the event waitstaff. Uh, no experience is necessary and you get paid in-house training. This is a great opportunity if you're looking for work. Visit cateringbyuptown.com. That's cateringbyuptown.com. And make sure that you mention that Al Galdi sent you. More now with Commander's Analyst Mark Bullock, who provides excellent Commander's Film breakdowns on his Substack, Bullock's Film Room, uh, which you can find at markbullock.substack.com. 
All right, the sacks. Uh, the commanders in the win over the Cardinals allowed six sacks, a way too high total. Uh, you on Tuesday morning, put up a breakdown of the six sacks. We know that the responsibility for the sacks was on both Sam Howell and the offensive line. That said, was one party more guilty than the other? Yeah, no, it, it, it wasn't a fair split in my eyes. In my eyes, it was it was more on the quarterback. Um, and, and obviously, you want to be somewhat lenient with a young quarterback that like Sam Howell that's still learning his way in, in his second game. But um, the, the sacks, a lot of the sacks were avoidable. Like the first two sacks were, they weren't really sacks. They were one, the, the first one, he scrambled out to the right and stepped out of bounds a yard behind the line of scrimmage. And, and that was one where he should have just thrown it away or and been more aware of his position or could have, you know, dived forward for an extra yard to, to get out of bounds a yard forward. Um, so that was the first sack. So that's completely on him. Um, the second sack was an RPO where he pulled the ball thinking he was going to throw a bubble screen. And then the cornerback jumped on that real quick and he sort of hesitated. And then he tried to run up the middle himself when he realized he didn't have his throw available. Um, and obviously when, when uh, an RPO is designed, it's designed to be handed off to the running back up the middle. And when the quarterback delays and then runs himself, that kind of throws off the timing of everything. Um, so he didn't. He lost a yard there. So those were two sacks that they weren't the traditional type of sack where you're dropping back, passing, and getting sacked in the pocket. They were they were plays that he just didn't get back to the line of scrimmage on. Um, so those were both on him. Um, the one that was really on the offensive line was probably the the sack fumble play that we talked about. Andrew Wiley got beat by a um, a spin move on the edge and. He was perhaps anticipating Antonio Gibson was releasing inside of him, and he was perhaps anticipating a little bit of help inside of him. And, and you would like to think Gibson would show the awareness of if he sees that edge rusher spinning inside, that he'd just give him a little chip and, and help his offensive lineman out. But Gibson didn't do that, and then and, and Wiley got beat. Um, so that was for me. That was the main one that was on the offensive line. Um, There's another one where. Um, Nick Gates, the, the 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 line had a slide to the left, and um, Nick Gates was meant to slide alongside Sadiq Charles and Charles Leonard. And Charles initially picked up the defensive tackle to his side, and then continued sliding outside to help Leno, expecting Gates to pick up the defensive tackle. Unfortunately, for some reason, Gates had some kind of mental error where he began sliding left and then some reason looked back to his right and that meant that the defense attack was then free to rush how um however on that one uh how had opportunities to get rid of the ball like it, it wasn't like the pressure was immediate he, he got to the top of his drop he, he had the, uh, a chance to kind of sit at the top of his drop and deliver a throw he just kind of locked on john dotson when when i i felt he could have thrown to either logan thomas in the flat or to the other side to terry mclaurin so that one I kind of had 50-50. And then there was um, another unfortunate one where Brian Robinson tripped up Sadiq Charles um, trying to release. So that was another unfortunate one. So that's five of them. And I I had kind of two and a half on Howell and one on the offensive line and then one on Brian Robinson. Uh, The other sack was just a case of, in my mind, it was just a case of the defense having a good call against an inexperienced quarterback. Um, they showed a big cover zero blitz with seven defenders up on the line of scrimmage and, and how thinking that uh, 
that blitz was coming, he motioned Logan Thomas in to help protect. Um, and that left Logan Thomas on the edge rusher, um, which isn't ideal, but it's what you need if you're, you're getting seven people blitzing you. Um, but then the Cardinals dropped out into coverage and that left Thomas on the edge rusher and, and, and you know, Logan Thomas isn't going to block an edge rusher for particularly long. So um, that one was also kind of on how, but more just a good call by the defense um, against an inexperienced quarterback. So for me, it was it was one good call by the defense, one on Robinson tripping up Sadiq Charles, kind of one and a half on the offensive line, and two and a half on Sam Howe. Interesting to hear all of that. It also stood out that three of the four highest graded commanders offensive players for the game in terms of overall grades from pro football focus were offensive linemen, Charles Leno Jr., Samuel Cosme, and Andrew Wiley. Was the line better than it's being given credit for? Uh, I think so. Um, I, I think um, I, I tweeted out a couple of plays on, on Monday night with City Charles did a really nice job. Um, the sort of thing I was talking about earlier where, where the line is sliding um, and Nick Gates picks up the defensive tackle and that leaves Charles free to go and help Charles Leno. And, and Sadiq Charles punished a few defensive ends while doing that. And the, the kind of defensive ends were trying to rush up the field and then stunt inside and, and Charles knocked him over. And then that made it a lot easier for the rest of the game for, for Leno on the edge because that kind of took away the rush inside and meant he only had to work one side. So... Um, I thought Charles had a really good game. Cosme, I thought, played pretty well as well at right guard. Um, and, and again, I, I tweeted out a clip of him on Monday night picking up a blitz that he really had no right to even be aware of, <laughs> let alone spot it and, and pick it up. Um, it, it, that, that was a really good play from him. Um, and I, I think I, I quite like what I've seen from Nick Gates in preseason. I, I think um, he's a really smart center. He seems to have a good sort of wavelength with Howell in terms of identifying blitzes and then helping pick up rushers and um, targeting the protection. So I, I think Nick Gates offers something at centre. So they've, they've got something with their interior three. Those guys played well. Charles Leno gets a lot of bad rep from Washington fans for, I don't really understand why, um, he, probably just because he's not Trent Williams. And I think we've probably been spoiled in Washington from, you know, having... Samuel and then Williams to going to Charles Leno. Leno is a perfectly decent left tackle and perfectly serviceable. Yes, he's not Trent Williams in that he can do these amazing things, but he's a very good left tackle um, and, and he played pretty well. Uh, for me, Andrew Wiley was the only one that had some rough plays. Uh, that's not to say every play was a bad one, um, but he's the one that I would say probably needs to improve a little bit. But um, I, I thought overall it was a pretty decent performance from the offensive line. What's your assessment of the play calling of Eric Bieniemy in his first regular season game as commander's assistant head coach slash offensive coordinator? Yeah, I thought it was okay. Um, I was expecting to see a little bit more of the kind of the RPOs and the quick game. And obviously we did get a bit of that, but I was expecting to see that be basically the main feature. Um, and we saw probably more of the kind of traditional West Coast passing attack, um, which is fine. It's perfectly serviceable. And, and obviously the the West Coast stuff is more short and intermediate passes, but we saw the kind of more intermediate stuff of that. Um, so I, I thought they would have leaned more on the RPO game um, and the sort of quick game passing to 
to try to take things off how and, and not have him processing quite so much and, and having getting the ball out quicker. Um, but the, uh, I, I thought they moved the ball pretty well. Like in the first half, the offense put up a bunch of yards. Like I think Sam Howe had something like a total of 210 yards or something. And I think he had 170 of that in the first half. Um, they moved the ball really well. They just had the kind of turnovers that, that killed drives. Um, and, you know, in the second half, I think I understood why they, they went run heavy in the second half. Um, I, I've always been the kind of in that sort of late in the game, you go get the first down and kill the game yourself rather than relying on defense. I've always kind of believed in if you have to pass on third down, go do it and, and pick up that first down. And, and don't rely on your defense. But given the situation, the Cardinals hadn't threatened to score a touchdown basically all the game. Their only touchdown came from Al's fumble. Um, the rest of their, the offense only kicked field goals and, and, and they hardly moved the ball. The defense basically shut them out. And so I perfectly understood that if you can run the clock down as much as possible, you're in field goal range, take the field goal um, and give yourself four point leads and force the Cardinals to, you know, do something they hadn't been able to or looked like doing the whole game, which was score a touchdown. Um, I, I thought that was the right decision and it turned out to be the right decision because, you know, the Cardinals, I, I don't think they went three and out quite, but they, they pretty much did and, and the defense turned up again. So um, I understood that decision to, to lean a little bit more on the run late on um, and, and, Maybe in different different situation, you'd like to see him be a little bit more aggressive and, and go for you know killing the game yourself rather than relying on defense. But um, I think he played the situation just fine there. The commander's defense in the win over the Cardinals was outstanding, especially the team's top three defensive linemen, Montez Sweat, Jonathan Allen, and Deron Payne. All three really good. Who was the best of the three in this game? Uh, I, I think obviously Montez Sweat had the kind of big impact plays. Uh, the, the fumble really turned the game. Um, the sack fumble really turned the game, and then and that was huge. Um, and that came at a big moment where it was just kind of drifting into a point where it felt like you know Washington had had a few bad drives offensively, and the Cardinals had got to a six point lead, and the the brain was pouring, and it was feeling like it was all against them. Um, and then that kind of really sparked the team into life. So bringing in that kind of big play at that moment um, was, was huge. Uh, I always kind of feel like consistently the most consistent player on that defensive line is Jonathan Allen. Um, and obviously he had the big sack as well um, towards the end of the game. Um, but I think Montez Sweat probably had the better game just because of the, the impact plays that he did have. Um, all three played very well. The whole defensive line played well. Um, and the tone was pretty much set from the very first play. The first play that the Cardinals ran was a, a wide zone to their left, and Jonathan Allen blew up a double team, and that left. The running back had to try to bounce outside, and that left Jamin Davis completely unblocked, and then and Davis sprinted to the edge, reacted really well, read it perfectly, um, and made the tackle. So um, that, that kind of set the tone, and, and the defense didn't really let up from there. So... I thought it was a really strong performance from especially that defensive line. One more for you. With the linebackers in the win over the Cardinals, Cody Barton played on 100% of the commander's defensive snaps. Jamin Davis played on 65% 
of the commander's defensive snaps. I think that most people would have thought that Jamin would have played more than Cody. Uh, maybe this was just a game plan specific thing, but what'd you think about Cody Barton playing so much more than Jamin Davis did? Yeah, I, I think that was kind of a personnel group thing. Um, I, when they go into their sort of, they have that five D line package where it's five defensive linemen, one linebacker and, and five DBs. Um, or when they go on their, in their dime package where it's, four defensive linemen, one linebacker, and six DBs. Um, that obviously leaves only room for one linebacker. And I kind of anticipated, given that Cody Barton had a few issues in preseason, I kind of thought Jamin Davis might have been the guy that took over there. But um, I guess they kind of went with, well, Cody Barton's our, our mark linebacker. He, he, he's the guy with the green dot that's relaying all the calls. So let's just keep him on the field and trust him. He's our mic. We'll, we'll, we'll believe in him. Um, and, and I guess that meant Jamie Davis missed out, but, um, yeah, I, I wouldn't necessarily be surprised if later in the year, uh, Jamie Davis, th- those two kind of flip in the amount of snaps they played where, where Davis plays the mic on in those sub packages. And then when it's two linebackers, Barton takes over, um, I don't know what the rules are with the, the helmet and having the microphone in them and then whether they then have to switch helmets every time they, they switch personnel packages. I don't, I don't know. Maybe it's as simple as that, um, that they didn't want to have to switch helmets. Um, but I, I kind of would anticipate Davis in the long run end up playing more snap. Yeah, you have the linebacker who is the mic and you have the linebacker with the mic. And those are two <laughs> those are two very significant things. The great Mark Bullock, a commander's analyst, a commander's fan. Check out his work on his Substack, Bullock's Film Room, which you can find at markbullock.substack.com. Mark, thanks a lot and talk to you soon. Thanks for having me. All right, good stuff from Mark Bullock. High level commander's inside, just like the high level work from Nova Fireplace and Stove. Nova Fireplace and Stove is outstanding. It handles gas fireplace sales, service, and installation, handles gas, electric, and wood stoves, and handles chimney cleaning and repair. If you live in Northern Virginia, stay warm and upgrade the feel and value of your home with Nova Fireplace and Stove. Call Nova Fireplace and Stove at 571-513-3803. Mention that Al Galdi sent you and receive $25 off any service or receive a free vent kit on any in-stock gas insert. Nova Fireplace and Stove, it has been around for more than 20 years. It is run by massive Commanders fans, and it has outstanding professionals. Whatever the work that you need done requires, Nova Fireplace and Stove has. Master gas fitter, master electrician, class A contractor, licensed chimney inspector. And because of this, Nova Fireplace and Stove can complete your project without the need for any subcontractors. And Nova Fireplace and Stove can pull all of the necessary county permits for the work that is being done. Additionally, Nova Fireplace and Stove can perform fireplace and chimney safety inspections. See for yourself the work that Nova Fireplace and Stove can do. It has a showroom in Woodbridge, Virginia, and has a terrific website, Nova fireplaceandstove.com and take advantage of the special deal for listeners of the Al Galdi podcast. Call Nova Fireplace and Stove at 571-513-3803. Mention that Al Galdi sent you and receive $25 off any service or receive a free vent kit on any in-stock gas insert. Join the Nova Fireplace and Stove family and experience the fireplace service and care 
that you deserve. Call 571-513-3803. That's 571-513-3803. And make sure that you mention that Al Galdi sent you. Well, leading the way when it comes to buying tickets for sports, music, comedy, and theater is the Game Time app. If you are looking for great deals on tickets to Commander's Games, make sure that you download the Game Time app and use the promo code ALGALDI. Game Time offers great deals on last-minute tickets and has a best price guarantee. So you no longer have to worry if you're truly going about getting tickets in the best possible way. The Game Time guarantee means that you'll always get the best price. And if you find tickets in the same section and row for less, Game Time will credit you 110% of the difference. What's also great about Game Time is how easy it makes searching for tickets. You can search by team, venue, or artist. Uh, I was just on Game Time looking at tickets for Commander's Games in the 2023 regular season. A lot of good deals, and the seating chart next to the listed tickets made figuring out what exactly I'd be getting super easy. Game Time is the fastest-growing ticketing app in the country. Game Time is the app for last-minute ticket deals. You don't have to plan months in advance. Game Time has deals on tickets right up to the day of the event. Game Time also offers flash deals on tickets, and tickets are sent directly to your phone, so you never have to dig through your email. Get the tickets without the stress with Game Time, which is offering a special deal for listeners of the Al Galdi podcast. Here's what to do. Download the Game Time app, create an account, and use this promo code, Al Galdi. You use that promo code, Al Galdi, you get $20 off your first purchase. Uh, terms do apply, but download the Game Time app, create that account, and use the promo code, Al Galdi, for $20 off your first purchase. What time is it? It's game time. <laughs> download the Game Time app today. Last minute tickets, lowest price guaranteed. Well, Wednesday marks the start of the Commander's practice week for their next game, which is at the Denver Broncos this Sunday afternoon at 425. The Broncos began their 2023 regular season with a 17-16 home loss to the Las Vegas Raiders this past Sunday and what was the regular season debut of Sean Payton as Broncos head coach, uh, quarterback Russell Wilson off his horrendous first season with the Broncos, completed 27 of his 34 pass attempts, had two touchdown passes versus no interceptions, took just two sacks, but he threw for just 177 yards. That works out to a yards per pass attempt of just 5.21. What will the commanders be facing in Wilson and the Broncos. I'm very pleased to welcome back to the Al Galdi podcast, Denver Broncos insider Zach Stevens of the DNVR.com. He is the co-host of the DNVR Broncos podcast. You can follow him on Twitter at Zach Stevens DNVR. Hey, Zach, how are you? Oh, I'm doing great. I'm happy football is back. And, uh, you know, the Broncos season didn't start off as planned in week one. They're looking to bounce back against the commanders in week two. What were your biggest takeaways from the Broncos loss to the Raiders? You know, there, there was a lot. It was a really interesting game. The Broncos have now scored exactly 16 points in five of their games dating back to the start of last season. And 16 points, as you know, is not 
good, and they've scored fewer than 16 points more times than that in the past 18 games. But what was interesting about this past game was the Broncos' defense held the Raiders to 17 points. The Broncos only were able to score 16 points. So you would say the defense did a good job, the Broncos' offense did a poor job. But in reality, when you look at the game, the defense really didn't play as well as the 17 points that they gave up would indicate. And the offense actually played a lot better than the 16 points that they scored would indicate. And one of the biggest reasons why is this game was such a unique and rare game for for really any NFL team, but specifically for the Broncos. There were only 12 possessions in the game. The Raiders only had six possessions. The Broncos only had six possessions. It was the first time, first time since 2000 that the Broncos have only had six possessions in a game, and so that really limited scoring. And the Broncos actually averaged 2.67 points per possession on offense. That would have been the second best in the NFL uh, last season, only to the Chiefs, but they only had six opportunities. They really just drove the ball slowly down the field on pretty much every single one of their drives. And on the flip side, the Broncos' defense gave up 3.4 points per possession, which would have been the worst in the NFL, I believe, last year. So it was a, it was a very deceiving game when you just look at the end score. That really is something. I can only imagine how much Russell Wilson conversation that you've engaged in over the last 18 months. There is a particular interest in him in the Washington, D.C. area because the commanders in the 2022 offseason tried very hard to trade for Wilson. They wanted him badly, did not get him. And then the day after the news broke of him being traded to the Broncos, the commanders agreed with the Indianapolis Colts on the trade for quarterback Carson Wentz. But how salvageable is Wilson in your opinion? Right now, Commanders fans have to feel like they, they dodged a bullet with this one, especially within the five-year $250 million extension that Russ got. But the, the good news is for Broncos fans right now is that Russ has showed a lot of improvement and a lot of signs of life since Sean Payton got here. Training camp, he had a pretty good training camp, uh, and he actually played extremely well this past week in comparison to what happened last year. I do think that that there is enough left of Russ where he can get back and be a, a, a above average quarterback. But when the Broncos traded for him 18 months ago, the city was going absolutely crazy because they just thought they got a future Hall of Fame quarterback and he still might be that. They thought they got uh, a potential top five quarterback, a guy that could be in the MVP conversation year in and year out. And obviously last year was such a disaster. Now fans would sign up for Russ being just above average for the rest of his time with the Broncos. And then you'll we'll, we'll, we'll have that conversation if he's only just above average. Every single year there's going to be that conversation. Okay, is this the time that the Broncos move on from him? How much dead cap is going to be involved with moving on from him? But what we've seen from Russell Wilson under Sean Payton is getting back to what he did so well in Seattle, and that's moving with his legs and getting outside of the pocket. Last year when Nathaniel Hackett uh, traded for Russell Wilson and got him, Nathaniel Hackett made a big point of emphasis. We want Russell Wilson to win from the pocket. Well, he hasn't done that in his entire career. It made no sense to do that, and Russell Wilson really struggled with that. Sean Payton now wants him on the move, and in the preseason, we really saw him run uh, and actually run past the line of scrimmage and gain a lot of yards. He did not do that this past week, but 
when you look at the at the film, he really was moving around behind the line of scrimmage, uh, helping the pass rush, uh, helping the line avoid the pass rush. So really seeing Russ get back to his old ways of using his legs. The Broncos this past offseason spent some money on their offensive line. Uh, what do you make of the offensive line? Well, the Broncos uh, put uh, $60 million, or I should say $40 million per year in this offensive line this offseason by signing Mike McGlinchey and Ben Powers uh, in, in, in free agency. And so they put a massive investment in this offensive line, and it should be a lot better. But in training camp, there were really, really mixed results. And so I think what we're going to see, especially at the beginning of this season, is an offensive line that struggles in pass protection and is really good in run blocking because that's the strength of pretty much every single one of the offensive linemen the Broncos have. Now, what was impressive and probably the biggest surprise of Sunday's game against the Raiders was the offensive line's pass protection was much better than anything we have seen. So maybe they made a big step from the end of the preseason to the beginning of the regular season, or maybe it was just a fluke. And the Broncos did a good job containing Max Crosby, who has destroyed them. He had one sack, but outside of that, the protection was pretty good. But I know with the commanders, that's going to be another massive point of emphasis. And really, that's probably where the game rests on for the Broncos and potentially commanders is does this commander's front seven dominate the Broncos offensive line when it comes to protect, pass protection? If so, the Broncos aren't going to win this game. If they can hold up like they did against the Raiders, they'll give themselves a chance. We're talking commander's Broncos with Denver Broncos insider Zach Stevens of the DNVR.com. The Broncos skill position players, are they good enough for the team's offense to be good this season? It's such a good question, and right now the Broncos, uh, as of uh, Tuesday morning, lost another one of their skill position players. Uh, their most dangerous receiving tight end, Greg Dulcich, hurt his hamstring in week one. He's dealt with that injury since he got in the league last year, and he's going to miss multiple games, so he will not be playing on Sunday. Jerry Judy, the Broncos' number one receiver, missed Sunday's game against the Raiders. He's going to be questionable going into week two. I do expect Jerry Judy to play, but the Broncos also are without Tim Patrick, one of their top three receivers who got injured in training camp this year. So Broncos are really already down uh, many of their weapons on the offensive side of the ball, and that just is going to make the running the ball that much more important. And the Broncos do have a couple of really good backs. Javante Williams coming back from a devastating knee injury, and he looked really good in week one. And Samaj P. Ryan, who they picked up in free agency from the Bengals, he also looked really good. So I expect the Broncos to run the ball quite a bit more than they did this past week in order to, to help the lack of, of weapons that they have in the passing game. There are some notable former members of the Redskins on the Broncos. You just mentioned one uh, running back, Samaj P. Ryan, uh, who the Skins took in the fourth round of the 2017 NFL Draft out of Oklahoma. Uh, this is his age 28 season. He had a solid run with the Cincinnati Bengals the previous three seasons, 2020 through 2022. What is Samaj's role with the Broncos? He was brought in to have an even bigger role than he had with the Bengals. And that's something that Sean Payton sold him on. And that's a big reason why Samaje came with the Broncos. And he's an all-around back. As you know, he can pass protect, he can catch out of the backfield, and he can run the rocks specifically in between the tackles. He's a hard-nosed runner. And he's essentially Javante Williams 2.0. I mean, Javante is the starting running back, but Samaje can do everything that Javante can. 
uh, and maybe even better when it comes to pass protection and catching the ball out of the backfield. They are using these guys as a one-two punch and exactly like that. They're both getting the same amount of carries, the same amount of touches, and that's how I expect it to be pretty much this entire season unless Javante really starts pulling away with it at the end of the year. But Samaje, he was brought in for a much bigger role than he had with the Bengals, and, and so far, not just in week one, but everything we saw in training camp is that Sean Payton's given him that role. So I expect him to have a, a, a big role in Sunday's game. The Broncos defensive coordinator is Vance Joseph, who used to be the team's head coach. Uh, He was the Broncos head coach for the 2017 and 2018 seasons. And then the team this past February hired him as defensive coordinator. (laughs) Has that been odd or awkward? It it definitely was at the beginning, at least from an outside perspective. How bizarre is that? I mean, just a couple of years ago, he was fired uh, and fans were not a fan of Vance Joseph. And now he's brought back. And I would say from a fan perspective, fans are still pretty skeptical of Vance running the defense. But I have to say, I have been so impressed with how comfortable Vance has been because it could have been a very awkward, uncomfortable situation. But Vance just has understood from the time he was fired as being the Broncos head coach. This is just a business. Nothing's personal. And he, he's done a great job from the personal side uh, of handling this. And you know what? The players really liked Vance. And there's still a couple of players that were on this team when he was the head coach. And they really did respect Vance Joseph. It, it's, it's really well believed here in Denver that Vance didn't get a fair shot when he was the Broncos head coach. That John Elway, who was the general manager at the time, really made way more decisions than a general manager should do in terms of it really getting involved in the head coaching decisions. And so Vance didn't have a fair shot. That's how it's viewed, uh, not just in Denver, but also inside the building. So people are happy that Vance is back. And the interesting thing with Vance is he's never had a top defense in the NFL. And the Broncos, Broncos expect this to be a really good defense. I expect expectations a little bit lower than that. I think this should be slightly an above average defense. And after seeing Sunday's performance against the Raiders, I think that's probably where this defense is average to to slightly above average. Yeah. What would you say is concerning about the Broncos defense this season? The pass rush and and the front seven, specifically the pass rush, they have an elite secondary. They have arguably the best safety in the NFL and the best cornerback in the NFL in Pat Sertan and Justin Simmons. I like their inside linebackers. Their defensive line is solid, but when it comes to the pass rush, that is going to be the make or break to this Broncos team. They have a lot of talent, a lot of names. Randy Gregory's getting over $13 million per year. They brought in Frank Clark from the Chiefs. They're giving him $7.5 million per year. Uh, and then they have some some young uh, other guys who are really performing well, too, or believed to perform well. And in training camp, these guys were destroying the Broncos' offensive line. It was the biggest bright spot of training camp was how good this pass rush looked. And then in week one against the Raiders, maybe we found out it was the Broncos' offensive line that was a little more concerning in training camp because they weren't able to get any pressure on Jimmy Garoppolo. Jimmy G is a guy that gets the ball out quick, so maybe a little excuse there. But the pass rush pretty much looked non-existent against the Raiders. The Broncos, in the loss to the Raiders, did have some special teams problems. Uh, Just a bad day at the office, or are Broncos special teams again an issue? Yeah, special teams have been a concern in Denver for almost 10 years, and they (laughs) haven't been able to get it figured out. Last year, it was an absolute disaster. The year before that, 
it was a disaster as well. Now, Sean Payton made a huge emphasis to get that turned around in a heartbeat. He brought in um, someone that, that is regarded by many as the best special teams coordinator that's ever been around in the game, Mike Westhoff. He's technically the assistant to the head coach, but he's really their their special teams coordinator, uh, along with uh, a guy named Ben Kutwika. And these guys were supposed to, in Sean Payton's mind, turn the Broncos special teams around in a heartbeat. I don't think Sean really realized just how long it takes to turn special teams around. Maybe by the end of the year, this is a really good group, but when you take over consistently a really bad special teams group, it, it takes some time. It takes some games, just not years, to turn that around. So Sean, he went, he started the game with an onside kick, a really aggressive call. And to me, I think it was the wrong move because he was acting as if he had been here for years and knew exactly what this special teams unit was. And that's not the case. The, the, this special teams unit has a long way to go. So they had a penalty on the onside kick, gave the Raiders the ball. And with fantastic field position, the Raiders went down, scored a touchdown off of that. And then another thing that Sean Payton did was two weeks ago, the Broncos traded for former Saints kicker Will Lutz. That was his kicker in New Orleans. And Will Lutz is coming off the worst year of his career by far. But Sean Payton thinks that he's still a good kicker. Well, Will Lutz missed an extra point. The Broncos lost by one point. Will Lutz also missed a 55-yard field goal. He hits both of those. Maybe it's a different game. Maybe we're talking about the Broncos being 1-0. and So the kicking game is definitely a concern just because Will Lutz has been a pro bowler, but you're talking about five years ago. Last year, coming off the worst year of his career and coming off a bad game in week one. Denver Broncos insider Zach Stevens of the DNVR.com, the co-host of the DNVR Broncos podcast. Zach, thanks a lot. All the best. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. All right, Zach Stevens, educating us, smartening us up about the Broncos, whose uh, coaching staff has multiple former members of the Skins. The Broncos' inside linebackers coach is former Skins defensive coordinator Greg Minuski. Uh The Broncos' special teams coordinator is former Skins special teams coordinator Ben Kotwika. And the Broncos' assistant to head coach Sean Payton is Paul Kelly, uh, who worked as Washington's Director of Football Operations for 11 seasons, 2010 through 2020. Hey, if you're looking for a good outlet to play fantasy sports, check out Underdog Fantasy. Uh, I am proud to be partnering with Underdog Fantasy. Uh, I, for this season, am making fantasy football picks for Commander's Games in terms of Underdog Fantasy's higher-lower totals. Uh, underdog Fantasy is great. It is the best and easiest place to play fantasy sports. Check out underdogfantasy.com or download the Underdog Fantasy app. Uh, Underdog Fantasy offers pick'em games by which you can win up to 20 times on your money in one day and offers pick'em insurance, which gives you a little wiggle room if you're not as confident in an entry. And when it comes to season-long fantasy, Underdog Fantasy offers a zero-stress scenario of no waivers, no trades, even no lineup setting. We all know that playing fantasy sports can be ultra-time-consuming. Well, Underdog Fantasy removes the time consumption, but keeps the fun and the potential to win money. And Underdog Fantasy is offering something special for listeners of this podcast. If you sign up now with the promo code GALDI, my last name, G-A-L-D-I, GALDI, uh, Underdog Fantasy will double your first 
deposit with up to $100 in bonus cash when you make your first deposit of at least $10. So in other words, if you deposit $100, you get $100 for free. Free money. (laughs) That's Underdog Fantasy, promo code GALDI. Check out underdogfantasy.com or download the Underdog Fantasy app and use the promo code GALDI. Must be 18 or older, 19 or older in Alabama and Nebraska, 21 or older in Massachusetts and Arizona, and must be present in a state in which underdog fantasy operates. Terms apply. Concerned with your play, call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit ncpgambling.org. In Arizona, call 1-800-NEXT-STEP. In New York, call 1-877-8-HOPE-NY. And in Tennessee, call 1-800-889-9789. Well, we have exciting Nationals news. Starting pitcher Jackson Rutledge is going to make his Major League regular season debut on Wednesday evening in what is Game 3 of a four-game series for the Nats at the Pittsburgh Pirates. Uh, Nats manager David Martinez confirmed this during his post-game session with reporters on Tuesday night. Uh, Jackson Rutledge, he per MLB Pipeline, is the Nats' number 13 prospect. This season is his age 24 season. The Nats took Rutledge with the number 17 overall pick in the 2019 MLB draft out of San Jacinto College, a public community college in Texas. He's a big dude. Uh, He's listed as being 6'8 and 251 pounds. Uh, Rutledge in the 2021 and 2022 season struggled with injury and ineffectiveness, but Rutledge this season pitched well for AA Harrisburg. The Nats on June 28th promoted him to AAA Rochester. His overall stats for Rochester were not very good, but he over his last six starts for Rochester had an ERA of 364. And so now is the time. Uh, this was David Martinez during his postgame session with reporters on Tuesday night. Yeah, so R- Rutledge was, was going to start for us tomorrow. Um, so, you know, we'll, uh, we'll get him going. And um, like I said, you know, another young young uh, prospect of ours. Uh, we get to see him up here. Biggest day for, for him is just to go out there, try to have some fun and attack the strike zone. What were you seeing from him that made you give him the call? Yeah, he made he made some adjustments down there. Um, you know, uh, especially um, gathering himself when you know, things go get a little awry. He uh, he understands what he needs to do. So you know, I'm looking forward to watching him pitch tomorrow. Yeah, me too. Jackson Rutledge being called up. This adds some juice to the rest of this Nats season, which uh, right now is in dire need of juice. Uh, the Nats lost at the Pirates 5-1 on Tuesday evening. The Nats now are just 4-11 and over their last 15 games. The Nats over their previous 34 games went 23-11. and but the Nats over 15 games since are just 4-11. and So the Nats have as many losses over the team's last 15 games as the team had over its previous 34 games. So the Nats for this 2023 regular season are 65-80. and That is the third worst record in the National League. A big problem for the Nats during this stretch of 11 losses in 15 games has been starting pitching. The Nats starting pitcher on Tuesday evening was Yoan Adone. He, in his latest stint at the major league level here, has been really hit and miss. Uh, That trend did continue on Tuesday evening. Uh, Adone, in this 5-1 loss at the Pirates, allowed 
four runs in four innings. He gave up eight hits, a two-run homer, two doubles, and five singles. He issued a whopping six walks, one of which was intentional. Uh, He did record four strikeouts, but he over his mere four innings threw 93 pitches, 57 strikes versus 36 balls. Adone put at least two men on base in every inning in which he pitched. Uh, And as for the home run that Adone allowed, he in the bottom of the second gave up a two-run homer by ex-NAD Joshua Palacios to center field for a 2-0 Pirates lead. The Pirates AAA affiliate, the Indianapolis Indians, uh, they this past December claimed Palacios off waivers from the Nats AA affiliate, the Harrisburg Senators. Uh, This was off the Nats in April 2022, having claimed Palacios off waivers from the Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, Palacios, in his brief time with the Nats at the major league level, did not do much, did not play much. Uh, But Palacios, in this game on Tuesday evening, two for four with the two-run homer, a single, a stolen base, and an outfield assist. Not a bad showing against his former team. But Yohan Adone, in his latest in at the Major League level now, has made seven starts. Uh, He has been, shall we say, a high-variance pitcher. Uh, He, in three of the starts, has been quite good. Just five runs in 17 innings, including twice teasing, throwing a no-hitter. But he, in the other four starts, has allowed 17 runs in 16 innings. There just has been, like, no consistency with Yohan Adone. He's a young pitcher uh, this season is his age 24 season. Another problem for the Nats during this stretch of 11 losses in 15 games has been the team's offense. Uh, The Nats are missing third baseman Jamer Candelario, who they on July 31st traded to the Chicago Cubs for two prospects. The Nats are missing outfielder Stone Garrett, who is done for the season uh, due to a fractured left fibula and left ankle damage. Uh, Garrett got hurt in a 9-1 loss at the New York Yankees on August 23rd. Uh, The Nats on Tuesday evening scored just one run, uh, totaled just six hits, worked just two walks, Uh, did go two for four with runners in scoring position, but the six hits were comprised of two doubles and four singles, and the Nats made multiple outs on the base paths, including a runner being thrown out at home. Uh, Ildemaro Vargas, he is the Nats' starting second baseman and number five batter, went two for four with a double and an RBI single, but he in the top of the seventh off a one-out double, was thrown out at home on a Dominic Smith two-out single to right field as a Pirates right fielder, the uh, aforementioned ex-NAD, the man who apparently is the new Roberto Clemente, uh, Joshua Palacios, made a great no-hop throw for an outfield assist in getting Vargas out at home for the third out. Uh, the only other Nat with a multi-hit game on Tuesday evening, Joey Manessis, uh, he is the Nats starting DH and number four batter, went two for four with a double and a single. Uh, the Nats bullpen in this 5-1 loss at the Pirates on Tuesday evening was good. Uh, three Nats relievers combined to allow one run in four innings. Uh, Robert Garcia officially tossed a scoreless inning. He and the Pirates two-run fifth faced five batters, issued two walks, and got three outs. Uh, one of the walks was an intentional walk, as Nats pitchers in this game combined to issue 10 walks, four of which were intentional walks. Uh, Amos Willingham allowed one run in two innings. Andres Machado tossed a scoreless bottom of the eighth. Game three for the Nats at the Pirates, Wednesday evening at 6.35. And yes, Jackson Rutledge will be the Nats starting pitcher.
It is not good that the Orioles lost on Tuesday evening, but it is good that John Means was the Orioles' starting pitcher on Tuesday evening. The O's lost to the St. Louis Cardinals 5-2 at Oriole Park at Camden Yards in Game 2 of a three-game series, but the Tampa Bay Rays on Tuesday night lost 3-2 at the Minnesota Twins. So the O's for this 2023 regular season now are an American League best 91-53, and but still three games ahead of the Rays for the best record in the American League and for first place in the American League East. And the O's now have an elimination number, a magic number of 15 to clinch the American League East. And the Orioles starting pitcher on Tuesday evening was John Means. The O's on Tuesday afternoon announced that they had reinstated Means from the 60-day injured list. And he on Tuesday evening made his first major league regular season start since he underwent Tommy John surgery on his left elbow on April 27th. 2022. Uh, Means on Tuesday evening allowed three runs in five innings. He gave up five hits, two solo homers, and three singles. He recorded just one strikeout, but he issued no walks, and he threw a lot of strikes. 75 pitches, 55 strikes versus 20 balls. Uh, Means in the top of the first allowed a run on a two-out solo homer by Paul Goldschmidt to left center field for a one-nothing Cardinals lead. Uh, Means in the top of the second allowed a run on back-to-back singles to begin the inning, and then a one-out RBI sack fly for a 2-0 Cardinals lead. And Means in the top of the fourth allowed a run on a two-out solo homer by Richie Palacios to right field on an 0-2 pitch for a 3-0 Cardinals lead. This was O's manager, Brandon Hyde, during his postgame press conference on Tuesday night on John Means. I thought Means threw the ball well. It was, it was great seeing him out there. I'm sure he had a ton of butterflies. I've not talked to him since, but I uh, um, thought he had really good stuff. I thought the fastball velocity looked it was 93, 94. Um, thought he had some good change-ups. Made a mistake there with Palacios with the curveball, but uh, fastball change-up were really good. Consideration of another inning for him? Um, not at that point with what the score was and where they were in there with Goldschmidt there and Arnado coming up. Um, with a 3-2 game, um, I put, do I push him for eight to ten more pitches? Uh, I thought the right thing to do was get Lopi in there at that time. How nice to see him pound the zone the way that he did? He threw a ton of strikes, so that's uh, that's something that he does. You know, it looks like John Means. Um, ton of strikes with his fastball, really good changeup. Kind of got on, you know, they got, they got some soft singles there. Contreras with a soft single, Goldschmidt with a soft single. Um, he didn't cover first. Um, but I thought he was really, I thought he was good. Even though you badly needed the game, is it kind of a victory just getting him out there and getting that kind of performance from him? I think, well, it's uh, great to see him pitch the way he did. And, um, every, you know, every game right now is important. So, uh, you know, unfortunately, we didn't swing the, we didn't have the best night offensively and had traffic all night, but couldn't push runs across, unfortunately. Um, but it was nice to see him out there. Yes, it was. Uh, This season is John Means' age 30 season. He's under team control through next season. The O's took Means in the 11th round of the 2014 MLB draft out of West Virginia University. And he was a real bright spot for the O's during some down years. Means in the 2019 regular season in 155 innings over 31 games, including 27 starts, had an ERA of 360 and an ERA plus of 131. He was the Orioles' lone representative on the 2019 American 
League All-Star team. Uh, Means for the 2021 regular season totaled 146 and two-thirds innings over 26 starts and registered an ERA of 362 and an ERA plus of 123. He began that season on fire, including throwing a no-hitter. John Means in the Orioles' 6-0 win at the Seattle Mariners on May 5th. 2021. Cinco de Mayo, 2021, threw a no-hitter. It's hard to say how realistic John Means pitching well down the stretch of this regular season is, but if he does pitch well down the stretch of this regular season, and if he can prove himself to be a viable starting pitching option for the O's come the MLB postseason, uh, man, that would be awesome. You don't need five starting pitchers in the playoffs. You need four. Uh, The four for the O's right now would be Kyle Bradish, Dean Kramer, Grayson Rodriguez, and either Kyle Gibson or Jack Flaherty. Uh, No, (laughs) Orioles fan feels great about Gibson or Flaherty. Can John Means pitch well enough to be one of the Orioles' four starting pitchers in the playoffs? Uh, Would love for the answer to that question to be yes. Uh, Not much offense for the O's in their 5-2 loss to the Cardinals on Tuesday evening, but not because the O's did not put guys on base. The O's scored just two runs despite totaling nine hits and five walks. So the O's went just one for 12 with runners in scoring position. Uh, The Orioles' six hits were comprised of three doubles and six singles. Uh, A mixed game for the Orioles' bullpen. Three Orioles relievers combined to allow two runs in four innings. Jorge Lopez was charged with two runs in one and two-thirds innings. He, in the top of the seventh, gave up a one-out solo homer by Richie Palacios to right field on a one-two pitch for a 4-2 Cardinals lead. CNL Perez faced two batters and got one out as uh, he, to the first batter he faced, gave up an RBI single. And Cole Irvin tossed two scoreless innings. Game three for the O's against the Cardinals Wednesday evening at 6.35. Kyle Gibson will be the Orioles starting pitcher. And that will do it. For you and me for now, keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Thursday show, episode 656. We'll provide you with more on the Commanders with them on Wednesday, beginning their practice week for this Sunday's game at the Denver Broncos at 425. Also on Thursday show, we'll talk Nationals and Orioles. And that's on Wednesday evening at 635 of game three of a four-game series at the Pittsburgh Pirates. The O's on Wednesday evening at 635 have game three of the three-game series against the St. Louis Cardinals at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. And I, on Thursday's show, will have a Goldilocks preview and pick for Navy's game at Memphis on Thursday night at 7.30. Have a great rest of your Wednesday, and I'll talk to you on Thursday. You like the juice, eh?